Are you looking for answers to life's biggest questions like, who are we? What does it mean to be a human person? What does it mean to be a Catholic in America today? How can I be a prophetic voice in our culture? The Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston now offers its MA in Faith and Culture online. This program transforms students by immersing you in the historical, cultural, and theological patrimony of the Catholic tradition so that you'll go out into the dominant American culture and leaven it with the good news. Students can audit courses, get an 18-hour certificate, or go for the entire MA program. For more information, Google Center for Faith and Culture, the University of St. Thomas. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Dr. Stuart Squires. I'm the Associate Director of the Center for Faith and Culture and Associate Professor at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. The Center for Faith and Culture brings the Catholic voice to the ongoing conversation about the meaning of life and the liberty and pursuit of happiness we hold in common as Americans. Today's guest is Andrea Pachati Bear. Andrea is the Director of The Conscience Project. She is uh, formerly a legal advisor for the Catholic Association. She was also an appellate attorney and trial attorney for the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. She is a frequent contributor to the National Catholic Register and has also written for the Washington Post, CNN on Espanol, the New York Post, Real Clear, the Washington Times, the Washington Examiner, and Crux. She has a BA from Northwestern University and a JD from Stanford Law School. First of all, Andrea, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. No, it's great to be with you, Stuart. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'd like to have a conversation today about religious freedom and specifically what's going on today in, in sort of U.S. Uh, 21st century uh, legal uh, sphere and also sort of uh, comparing and contrasting, I guess you could say, with how our civil law thinks about religious freedom uh, in comparison how Catholics think about religious freedom. So why don't we start with uh, the basic question um, by defining our terms. Uh, what is religious freedom? It, it seems to me that the answer to that question is different if you're trying to answer it from a Catholic theological perspective versus trying to answer it from a civil legal perspective. Um, from a Catholic theological perspective, uh, and the definition I'm using here is from Vatican II's Dignitatis Humanae is, quote, while the religious freedom which human beings demand in fulfilling their obligation to worship God has to do with freedom from coercion in civil society, it leaves intact the traditional Catholic teaching on the moral obligation of individuals and societies towards the true religion and on the one church of Christ, close quote. Uh, I'm guessing that a civil, civil legal definition of religious freedom is quite different from this definition. So can you tell us what is freedom, religious freedom from a civil legal perspective? Well, I actually think that they're not in too much tension. And Catholics, especially in the United States, can see what the church guides as religious freedom and the, the boundaries, I guess, in our constitution as being complementary. So we know that in the U.S. Constitution, the First Amendment has what we call the religion clauses. And the first is an establishment clause. And that basically says that the state cannot establish a religion. And that applies to both the federal government as well as the state uh, governments as well. The second uh, is called the free exercise clause. And that basically means that the government cannot interfere with the free exercise of individuals or groups, religions. And it's very easy. A number of years ago, people used to think of those two clauses as being intention that there was kind of a battle between the two clauses. And if the government was supportive or endorsing religion, that that was somehow establishment. And so the government would basically almost be hostile to religion. Right. Things came back to where I think it should be, in, at least in the courts, where they're complementary clauses. And when we compare that to what 
definition you, Stuart, mentioned as far as the churches, it's basically what is a limitation on the government uh, in as far as the relationship to the individual who has their own rights and obligations to seek the truth. So from the level, like the civil legal perspective, it's basically a, a prevention or a limitation on the government, not on the individual. And, um, and the church is asking much more of individuals because God's. Right. And you, you said that you don't see that there's any sort of tension there or, or a, a conflict. Um, let me elaborate because yeah, it, please go ahead. Yeah, it is, it, you know, I want to make sure that when in, um, in the declaration on religious freedom that came out of Vatican II, there was a statement basically directing towards the role of civil authorities. Mm-hmm. So civil authorities are not supposed to either interfere with an individual's right to seek, uh, to exercise religion or as groups mm-hmm. or coerce belief. And so we're not, you know, as Americans, we're not quite um, accustomed to the notion of coercion. But if we look at in on the global scene, we can see predominantly Muslim countries, for example, um, where there is coercion uh, on the part of the government or even on non uh, by the part of non-state actors to coerce individuals to a particular sect or a particular belief system. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't see that, fortunately, in the U.S. There is kind of a, a laissez-faire attitude, I guess, to individuals pursuing their own religious beliefs. But we do see a situation where the government can restrict the free exercise. And in that respect, the Vatican says specifically that it's very important to the human person to be able to seek the truth. We know what the truth is, and the truth is being basically you know, held in custody by the, the Catholic Church. But it's a freedom that goes beyond just the right of Catholics to worship. It's the right of all people to seek the truth. And that doesn't undermine our understanding of what the truth is. It's basically, you know, taking the burdens and the hurdles away from people with the expectation that eventually they will come to the fullness of truth. Yeah, I personally had experience with that. After college, I joined the Peace Corps and I went to a country that's commonly called Mauritania in West Africa, but technically it's called the Islamic Republic of Mauritania. So literally built, baked into the name of the country is this idea that, uh, yes, we're a republic, but we are an Islamic republic. And of course, there are other, I think, Islamic Republic of uh, Afghanistan, I think is technically what that's called, and Iran as well. So yeah, I, I certainly have uh, personal experiences with that. Um, so we, we just define religious freedom and, and see the differences between uh, a Catholic definition and a civil law definition. I wonder if you could also define for me the idea of religious exemptions. This is a phrase I hear a lot. Uh, for example, when religious institutions like Catholic hospitals are or are not given religious exemptions to certain federal laws. What exactly does that mean? And how is a religious exemption determined to be genuine? Uh, On the one hand, it seems to me that these exemptions are going to be the thing that will allow Catholic institutions to continue to follow their Catholic mission uh, in face of increasingly hostile attacks from secular society. But On the other hand, personally, I worry that religious exemptions may not have the stability to provide a firm foundation for Catholic institutions in the future, because I'm worried that that they're sort of uh, arbitrarily given or there's no sort of objective standard. So can you talk about religious exemptions and and how we as Catholics should be thinking about those as 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 protecting us and our institutions? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. And I hope that I can kind of address the different facets of it. The first notion is that our system of law here in the United States is one that respects the autonomy of religious institutions, right? So when we think about um, something that's come up, which is called the ministerial exception, which is a form of an exemption from general rules related to employment discrimination, for example, there's an an exemption exception that's been carved out of the law that basically says that religious institutions 
have the autonomy to make hiring and firing decisions without the government coming in and second guessing them, even if they are for the purposes of very important civil rights, right, to, to protect against racial discrimination or disability discrimination. Um, and as our um, civil rights have expanded, we see that oftentimes some of those civil rights protections, for example, sexual orientation discrimination, can interfere with the mission of a religious institution as well. So in general, what the law has developed is saying, we're going to give you autonomy in making those decisions on who is going to be considered a quote unquote minister, somebody that is basically you know, pre presenting and teaching the faith. That can be a priest, a pastor, and in some recent Supreme Court decisions, it can be a religion teacher at a parochial school. So that's one way to think kind of concretely about the notion of exempting a religious institution or an organization from the state's uh, review or scrutiny of, of their inner workings. The other can be in the context of big, massive legislation. So the best way, uh, the best example, a uh, recent example has been the Affordable Care Act's contraceptive mandate, and more recently, what's known as the transgender mandate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it, without getting too, too much into the weeds, there are objections that religious individuals and organizations have to complying with those mandates. And in addition to protection under the First Amendment's free exercise clause, there's also a federal law called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And it says, and it binds only the federal government, whereas the First Amendment covers all government institutions, federal, state, local. Um, it only governs the federal government. And it says if the federal government is going to substantially burden religious exercise, it can only do so if there's a compelling state interest and in the least restrictive means possible. And what that allows for is this notion that you mentioned of exemptions. So let's assume for the part of our conversation that Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act was very important. And it's a compelling state interest that all Americans have access to uh, in health insurance coverage. Um, and then let's assume also that the contraceptive mandate is a compelling state interest, which there's a lot of question on that issue. But let's just assume for purposes of the conversation that that's the case, that women having access to health insurance that provides contraception and abortive patients is a compelling state interest. That can only be done in the least restrictive means possible without interfering with religious belief. And so when the little sisters of the poor came and said, we don't want our health insurance, employee health insurance plans being hijacked to cover things that we believe are morally objectionable, the RIFRA, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, would say, you're darn right, that's a sincerely held religious belief that should be respected not trampled on by the government. And so you should be afforded an exemption. Um, where we are on the terrible plight of the Little Sisters of the Poor, right. right now the Supreme Court has given two victories to the Little Sisters, saying that the federal, in the last, last summer, said that the federal government has the authority under Obamacare to carve out exceptions. And they did so in, under the Trump administration by creating a rule that will allow for both religious and moral objections to the contraceptive mandate. That same rule should be applied in the transgender mandate. The Trump administration came up with that kind of rule, but the Biden administration has rescinded or is carving uh, exceptions away from it. So the idea in general is that exemptions allow for objectors, both religious and moral objectors, to things that they believe interfere, substantially burden their religious exercise. And 
it's consistent with the notion of autonomy. It's consistent with the free exercise, allowing people to behave in a way that's not going to be in conflict with their religious beliefs or their conscience. And it's been upheld over and over again by the Supreme Court. Whether there's an affirmative duty, I believe there is on the part of government to not create these conflicts. And when the government does, that's where our courts come into play. Do you have the same fear that I have about uh, religious exemptions being, to me, it feels a bit arbitrary? I mean, the, 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 the case that you mentioned, the Little Sisters of the Poor, is the one that I have in mind, where it seems to me that that should never even had to go to the Supreme Court, because if the religious exemption is sort of already baked into the law, it should have been obvious to me that that, that should never have been an issue. But the fact that it had to go to the Supreme Court multiple times says that, well, maybe this whole religious exemption thing isn't as um, stable as, as, as then will not allow Catholic institutions to to follow their mission. Uh, do you have that fear or am I sort of? I, I do as our government becomes more and more secular and less and less attuned to the belief systems of religious Americans. Um, and when these very highly charged and controversial issues are being pushed at a federal level or, or even at a state level, whether it's abortion or transgender reassignment surgeries, gender reassignment surgeries, I don't think that there's the sensitivity that there once was to mm-hmm. that this is going to trigger a sincere objection. Right. And, and it will, will bring conflict, not just in the healthcare workers that maybe are are called in to assist in an abortion that they feel is morally objectionable, but as far back as providing health insurance or um, paying for services. And even we know at the taxpayer level, um, there's a big concern about the the, uh, removal of the Hyde Amendment where taxpayer funds can be used for abortions. And Many of our federal officials, and even at the state level, don't understand how how much conflict that is presenting for a large group of Americans. Right. Um, in many ways, that's why we have the courts. You yeah. know, the courts are the guardians of the Constitution. And so in the case of whether it's the legislature or the executive branch, when they do something that does step on important civil rights, it's the courts, the judiciary that are that are really going to be the guardians of these rights. And our system is very focused on civil liberties. Um, and so, you know, it, it's frustrating because it takes years and years. It takes um, the groups like the Little Sisters away from their mission mm-hmm. um, when they're having to litigate. But one thing that I've observed when the Little Sisters stood up to the contraceptive mandate they almost had a national audience to right. explain their beliefs. And, and that was a really wonderful opportunity. Right. So with every challenge, there's a great opportunity to be able to evangelize, to teach, to explain. And for many people that um, their kind of stalwart, uh, you know, insistence on their beliefs was a great educational tool as well. As a theologian, I often wonder, how our civil legal system considers theological arguments in the courtroom. So for example, let's take the Jack Phillips masterpiece uh, cake shop uh, case. You know, Jack Phillips says that he runs his business on religious principles. It seems to me that our civil legal system would have one of two general responses to that. Number one, they could say uh, that even though theological principles uh, don't do not govern our civil law that the law will respect Jack Phillips's religious principles and allow him to continue to operate. The other response, it seems to me, is that the civil legal system can say that, well, because the law doesn't consider theological principles, his religious convictions are moot in the courtroom and therefore his theological arguments have no standing. So how does civil law, the civil legal system, consider or not consider theological or religious arguments in, in, uh, in court? You know, there are two um, aspects to 
a belief that's being raised or, or in the case being in, infringed upon by the government. One is the veracity of the belief, right? Is it true? And our courts say they're not going to challenge or question the veracity of a belief. It's not the role of the judiciary to say, you know, whether it's true that same-sex marriage is an offense against God. The, the courts are not going to question the veracity of that. They may look at the sincerity of a, of a belief. And in the case of Jack Phillips, no one doubted that his belief on tr- with regard to traditional marriage was sincerely held belief. Mm-hmm. Um, there are cases where people will come up with, you know, nonsense belief systems to be able to avoid, uh, you know, having to comply with certain laws. So oftentimes, and it, it, this is not to disparage the role of um, prison litigation, because there it is very, very important that prisoners do have religious accommodations and that their uh, free exercise is respected within the, the scope and the boundary of their confinement. But there are times where someone will make, you know, a, I believe in the religion of, and they'll make something up. And so I need to have a steak dinner every Thursday. Mm-hmm. Well, th- you know, that's not sincere. And, and so the courts can challenge and look behind to see whether there's a sincere sincerely held religious belief or whether there's an opportunity. Um, And so it it does become a very delicate situation when you're going to raise uh, either a free exercise challenge or a defense to make sure that this really does touch into um, a belief system, whether it be religious or, as I mentioned before, moral. When we think about conscientious objectors to conscription, uh, military conscription, some of them didn't have a pacifistic religious belief system. They had a moral belief system mm-hmm. um, detached from any kind of institutional religion. But they did, that, their moral objection was recognized um, by the court as well. And so it's, it's kind of good. We're not going to have a, a bench of nine judges saying, well, come on, you know, things have changed. Even the Catholic church is a little bit hard to see when it comes on certain <laughs> issues. Right. They're not going to get to that issue, but they are going to, to make sure that there's a sincerely held belief. Um, the second part of my answer <laughs> to a very long answer was, I do think that these conversations are helpful to the court. And I've seen briefs filed, for example, amicus briefs, friends of the court briefs filed by the Thomistic Institute or Dominicans explaining Catholic teaching on mm. the nature of contraceptive contraception. I think that's important. Mm. I think it's very important because it impresses upon the justices and the larger community, the court of public opinion, that these are serious considerations, that these are, you know, sincerely held beliefs that go to a core of whether it's a religious institution or an individual and that the government forcing them to act inconsistent with their beliefs is really something that a civil society shouldn't allow to happen. It is not hard to see that Western culture is in the midst of a crisis. St. John Paul II described this crisis as a culture of death, and Pope Francis has described it as a throwaway culture. Despite this crisis, there is hope because the gospel is the prophetic voice crying out in our cultural wilderness. For over 10 years, the MA in Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston has transformed lay students who want to be the change in our culture by immersing them in the intellectual patrimony of the Catholic Church. In this graduate program that is now online as well as on campus, Students are equipped with the wisdom of the Catholic theological, moral, social, and spiritual traditions. Our students come from a variety of backgrounds, including different personal experiences, professional experiences, stages in life, and educational histories. What brings them together is their shared passion to grow intellectually and spiritually through immersion in the best texts that the Catholic tradition has to offer. For more information, Google, the Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas.
what what does the court look for when trying to determine a sincerely held belief? It's and I, and I'm especially thinking of this in light of uh, the reality of conversion, right? People convert from one religion to the other, and when they do that, there is no. I mean, I guess the court could say, well, we want to see you wrote ten years ago a letter to somebody and it has this sort of proof that you believe this. But if somebody converts to from one religion to another, there's not going to be any, I guess the word would be precedent established about what you believe. So what are the courts looking for to, to, to determine sincerity? You know, it's a very delicate um, look because we don't want to have somebody going and second guessing, you know, um, I think it, Recently in the news, there's news that Britney Spears has is now right. become Catholic, right? And yeah. and I'm sure that there are people who are like, yay, and others are like, really? <laughs> um, we don't want to get into a situation where we're questioning whether someone truly is saying what they say they believe in, you know, whether they truly believe in it. Um, but again, you know, it's it it's it's delicate. It's a delicate process. Typically, it's not one that the courts even get to. Mm -hmm. They kind of almost take for granted that when somebody says that this is part of their belief system, that they're being sincere about it. And so it's almost like there has to be extraneous or ancillary information out there questioning whether they truly do believe in it. But as we all know that this, you know, belief is hard. We can believe in one thing and act in many different ways. Um, and that's just, you know, part of our fallen nature that we're, we're often incoherent in our own actions. And so the court isn't going to go and ask for the perfect saint um, uh, to be able to say, well, yes, you know, and of course, the little sisters of the poor are just about as perfect as you can get. <laughs> right. um, but they're instead going to take a very, very hands-off um, approach when it comes to second-guessing what someone says that they believe in and only if if it really is kind of patently clear that it's an opportunistic uh argument instead of a sincerely held belief since uh 2015 the supreme court case obergefell v hodges which now federally allows homosexual marriages uh there have been civil cases where for example uh an employee of a catholic k-12 through school gets civilly married to his or her same-sex partner, and then the school either fires the employee or fails to, uh, to, to renew the employee's contract because of a sort of conflict of mission. Um, I have a sneaking suspicion that these types of cases are going to increase in the coming years. How, how do you predict that these types of cases will, pre- uh, will play out? Do you think that this will have to go to the Supreme Court and, and have a sort of sweeping mandate? Or do you predict a major crisis coming for Catholic institutions on this particular issue? I, I think you're absolutely right that this is going to be a big issue. Um, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, there is something called the ministerial exception, and that deals with people who have a role in passing on the faith. And it's going to be very important for Catholic institutions to be first completely clear about their religious identity. And that's something new that a lot of organizations are like, well, we're going to be doing everything um, that our faith is inspiring us to do, but we're not going to be upfront about our religious identity because we want to be able to reach and serve everyone regardless of, of faith. That's a really important mission and and a really important approach. But I think that we've learned right now, it's important to be very upfront with the religious identity of an organization, whether it be a school or any kind of um, social service program. If it is Catholic in identity and formation, it needs to be clear about that for the first part. The second would be these important sensitive positions. Um, And it's my belief that when we think, for example, of Catholic schools, everyone is passing on the faith, right? You know, and, and it's important to consult with legal counsel. Um, I would highly recommend if anyone's listening to this, that has this issue in their own organization to look at Napa legal Institute. They have a number of um, guides for organizations to make sure that they are clear about their religious identity and clear in identifying who in their organization is a minister for purposes of this ministerial exception. 
that is a complete defense to any claims um, related to unjust termination or discrimination. It's a complete defense. You don't even get into court. It's a bar from, from these claims being brought into the court. And it's out of respect for the autonomy of the religious organization, you know, the religion and, and, and broadly defined, it was basically to prevent the government from entangling with the internal operations of a church um, in its kind of original understanding. Um, but I do think it's going to get harder and harder where if you have, you know, uh, uh, a handyman, let's say, who all of a sudden is going to be, you know, kind of out publicly and what that does to the mission of a school or the mission of the church and whether that um, employment relationship is going to be subjected to scrutiny by the courts. I think mm-hmm. it's a really, really delicate situation um, and organizations, churches, schools and whatnot are going to have to be thinking about how do they um, have an understanding in general, the theory is you cannot contract away your civil rights. So if you sign, you know, an agreement not to, you know, enforce your civil rights, that agreement is is not valid uh, in the context, for example, of like Title VII or any kind of employment discrimination claims. Um, but there can be something about the nature of kind of living consistent with Catholic teaching and, and an upright law life. Um, and it should be across the board. Mm-hmm. So if, for example, you have a teacher who's divorced and remarried um, without any kind of annulment of the first marriage, that would be inconsistent with Catholic teaching on the nature of marriage. And, um, and so the school should be attentive that if they're going to be looking at somebody who maybe is engaging in a same-sex marriage um, and don't want that to be attentive to kind of the the nuance and trying to be consistent across the board. It's tough. I don't think that this is, we're not in an easy time at all uh, as far as being able to be consistent with church teaching and being able to pass on um, that belief and that consistency in our operations. To the the ministerial exception that you're talking about, that actually directly applies to me as a theologian in the school system that K through 12 or or universities can say, well, we're only going to hire a Catholic theologian or a, a, you know, Lutheran theologian or whatever the school is. Um, But you're also 100% right that at least from a Catholic perspective, you know, the word Catholic, of course, means uh, according to the whole, right, coming from the Greek compound kataholos. So what that means in the educational sphere is, yes, I as a theologian have a responsibility of forming my students, but so does the janitor, right, that we don't, we don't segregate or, or divide up, you know, one role of this person over here is in charge of forming the spiritual lives of uh, young Catholics, but this person over here, you know, the janitor, he or she is not uh, in charge of that, right? We see, according to the whole, everyone in the Catholic school system is um, really in charge of the form spiritual formation, whether it's in the classroom or not. I wonder or worry that that, that argument, again, it's a theological argument, it's an understanding of the human person and the mission of the church that I'm worried that that's just not going to be convincing in a civil case and in the civil courts. And they say, well, no, it's the theologian, it's his job or her job to do it. And, and so therefore, you know, if, if, if the, if the employee in question is not a theologian, then you can't uh, you know, you can't fail to renew this person's contract, for example. Well, and, and that's where um, fortunately last year in the Supreme court, it's not this past term, but the term before there were two, parochial schools in California, where there weren't challenges related to sexual orientation. Um, One was uh, age discrimination, the other was disability discrimination claims. And the Supreme Court ruled that the teachers, they were religion teachers, um, not only religion teachers, they were like homeroom teachers for a primary parochial school, but they had a role in teaching religion. And the Supreme Court said, you know, there isn't 
a fixed definition for who is a minister and who isn't. Mm-hmm. And that's been um, an evolution in the court's jurisprudence on this doctrine, basically saying, you know, you've got to look at what the responsibilities of the person and the position are. And so that allows for, I think, for putting in the handbook, you know, everyone is responsible for imparting the faith. Everyone is responsible for teaching. Now, obviously, it's going to get a little bit more difficult if people have very limited um, job descriptions, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's where it's important to get good counsel to look at the guidance that have been given by groups like Napa Legal and really think about how you are in practice and make sure that how you operate and practice is reflected in your documentation and in what you expect of your employees and what you communicate to them as well. So, um, you know, there was a case, I think, in the Seventh Circuit dealing with a music director. And I believe that the Second Circuit said that the music director was covered under the ministerial exception because they put a very important part, they, they, and we all know, play a very important part in the liturgy in, in shaping and forming and right. teaching. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's not as rigid right now. There is, um, and thanks to Justice Samuel Alito, who very early on in, in some of the cases and then most recently um, gave this guidance that you really have to look at what the person is doing. Um, but the more that we can explain that the person is imparting the faith and that they need to do so, can, you know, and live a life that's consistent with that teaching, the better. What do you think will be the the big religious freedom fights in the near future? Uh, is it the one we were just talking about, Ober- Obergefell v. Hodges? And relatedly, what issue or danger in dealing with religious freedom do you think Catholics need to know about, but maybe aren't thinking about on a regular basis? Yeah. You know, there are, it seems like there's so much. Um, <laughs> there, this, this term, the Supreme Court's going to be looking at some school choice issues. There's one case um, dealing with Maine and what's called the Blaine Amendments. And those are amendments that are found in gosh, 26 state constitutions. They were originated in the late 1800s, um, modeled after a failed attempt by Congressman James Blaine. Um, They were to prevent public funds from going to private or sectarian, which was another code word for Catholic schools or institutions. Um, Maine very interestingly enough, 50% of Maine school districts don't run their own high schools. So they have a law that allows for those school districts to pay for the tuition of students to go to private schools. But because of their Blaine Amendment, that doesn't allow for religious schools. And so the Supreme Court's going to be looking at whether its prior decisions, uh, really just recently, limit that. And, and as Catholics, we know that our Catholic schools are incredible lights, especially for, um, for all families to choose. And if you're Catholic, it's consistent with your role as a parent to make sure that your child receives a Catholic education. But even for non-Catholics in schools, especially urban areas and low-income minority uh, communities, Catholic schools are game changers for Mm -hmm. children and for families and being able to take advantage of school choice options like in Maine or in other states, that makes a big difference. And it's also, you know, as Catholics, it's part of our evangelizing mission um, to be able to impart through our Catholic schools an understanding of the faith um, and truth. So I think that's going to be a very big issue. It looks like the Supreme Court um, favors both the notion that parents are primary educators. That's always been something both in Catholic teaching and in the constitutional law. And um, and that that you cannot discriminate against religious schools um, at the, you know, you can't favor private schools at the expense of private religious ones. So 
that's a that's a it looks promising for for religious freedom. Um, nothing's ever guaranteed, but it looks promising. Mm-hmm. The other issue, though, Stuart, I think you're right. It's an ex, it's an expansion of a, a Bergefeld. It's also a, a case that happened a year ago, Bostock. Um, right. And and it's basically the spread and the promotion of an expanded notion of civil rights laws to include sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, those two cases, Obergefeld and Bostek, in the decisions themselves, had written both the majority opinions and the concurrent opinions that there are sincerely held religious beliefs at odds with these ideas, and the First Amendment offers protection. What the scope of that protection is are going to be the future cases. and. Right. You know, it's very, very difficult. It's very hard. Um, it's very easy to claim that a religious belief on the human person is bigoted. Um, and it's going to be important for Catholics to be able to defend religious teaching on the nature of the human being and sexuality with an immense amount of love and understanding and compassion, especially for people who have same-sex attraction sure. or gender dysphoria at the same time. We talked earlier about the, the issue of a sincerely held belief. Um, a, apart from that, um, what are the limits to religious freedom? I, I'm guessing that, for example, if a father were to try to make a claim in the court that God told him to sacrifice his son, that even if he sincerely believes that, and you could even see a sort of precedent establishing that he believes that, that that argument wouldn't be convincing anyways. So um, what are the limits to religious freedom? You know, that's, um, it, I would refer everyone to, again, Justice Samuel Alito in, in his recent concurring opinion um, in the Supreme Court decision dealing with this issue. He said that the history has shown that in general, free exercise should be understood in a capacious way. It's very broad, but there are limits, and those limits are health and safety limits. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the notion of, you know, my religion tells me that I should go and kill somebody. You know, no, the government can limit that. Or my religion, you know, goes and says that I should do something that's going to be, you know, dangerous to my neighbors, set my house on fire or whatever. Um, no. It needs to have some limits for the for health and safety. Um, looking at that is going to be the next big decision. Um, previously, we've been dealing with the notion of if there's a law that's generally applicable and neutral and just has an incidental burden on religion, it can continue to exist. The Supreme Court now is saying, well, you know, we don't think that that's consistent with the history of the free exercise clause, but it doesn't mean that free exercise can run roughshod. There's got to be some limits to this, and and health and safety are the most obvious ones. Whether um, whether there are other ad- additional limits, I think we're going to see in some of these cases. We know, for example, that um, when the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, if I'm getting my dates right. Mm-hmm. Um, there was enough of a national record of racial prejudice to basically say that there's such a compelling government interest that any religious objection should be suppressed. And so I, I agree with that. I think that that's you know, consistent with Catholic teaching, but there were people who said, you know, they were opposed to interracial marriage. They would point to what they believe the Bible said on that matter, which I believe is wrong. Um, but the court said that, that there was such overwhelming uh, evidence that a national, you know, a federal uh, restriction on religious discrimination was needed and, and religious and uh, racial discrimination was needed. So religious objections were not going to be entertained. Um, I don't think that same basis is found in the civil context related to sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, but we'll have to see. 
you know, obviously there were many people, proponents of the Equality Act that believe that that's the case. I don't think that that's, that's the case. And I don't think that there's a similar, you know, that there's a similar foundation for, for that kind of broad sweeping legislation. A couple of questions about you. Um, what is it about the question of religious freedom in the courts that, that excites you, that, that makes you want to sort of give your, your career over to exploring this question? What, 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 what gets you excited in the morning when you, when you wake up and you get to deal with these issues? You know, I've always been, the reason why I went to law school is to be a civil rights lawyer. And I still am very, very passionate about other civil rights, especially um, racial equality and, and equality for women. Um, properly understood, I'll put on it a caveat. Um, but I think that this is this is the critical civil right right, right now. And as a, a devout Catholic, I know the importance of religion in my own life. And I know that that is something that's very difficult. You really have to kind of swim against the stream, you know, the cultural stream that is secular and doubtful. Um, I know that it brings me a lot of joy. I know that it's important for other people as well. And I think that it's very important that the government does not limit the ability of people to be able to find a personal relationship with God. And Mm -hmm. so all of these, um, whether it's laws or, or regulations, they may have a strong foundation, but when they get in the way of someone being able to you know, live their life consistent with their beliefs, there needs to be um, some sort of reckoning and, and religious beliefs got to be the one that comes out on top. I mentioned earlier that you are the director of the Conscience Project. Uh, tell us about that. What is its mission and how does it go about accomplishing its mission? So we have been in existence for a little bit more than a year. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization that really focuses on public education on the importance of religious freedom and conscience rights, as well as participating in key religious freedom cases by filing amicus briefs uh, in the Supreme Court and in the lower courts of appeals. I found uh, great purchase with, as you mentioned before, a number of publications, both kind of more secular publications and some Catholic ones as well. But it's there basically to give a foundation for what the civil law is providing in the context of what matters to people, kind of grounded and, and give a boots on the ground approach um, and to really elevate the understanding of the role of religion in American society and on a global stage in addressing the needs of our neighbors. Um, that we can really see that countries, societies flourish when religion flourishes mm-hmm. and individuals and families flourish as well, the closer that they are to, uh, to their faith. So when the government is suppressing that, it really is harmful, harmful not only to the individuals, but it's harmful to society. If people want to contact the Conscience Project, how do they do so? So visit our website, which is conscience-project.org. You can see the things that that I've been writing. Uh, we have a new podcast series that is going to be put together with the National Catholic Register, touching upon a number of these different issues related to religious freedom. Um, It's called Religious Freedom Matters. And, uh, you know, it's just trying to be a dynamic source for people to be able to become educated and and bring this issue and this same interest for advancing religious freedom to your communities, uh, to your neighbors and explaining why it's important, even if you don't agree with someone's belief system, why it's important that they be able to believe. Final question. Uh, We are a people of hope, specifically hope in the resurrection. When you think to the future of religious freedom in this country, what brings you hope? You know, I think, gosh, wow. I tend to think of hope as being like that there's something more than you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes, man, this year has been hard, but I do, <laughs> I do see that it's, it's a quite a beautiful thing going back to groups like the little sisters, of the poor, um, they are living out their belief 
and caring for the vulnerable, you know, um, low-income seniors. And they're doing so um, in the public square. You know, they're not uh, running to the hills. They're not leaving the, the communities that they're in. They're living their faith in a spirit of service. And they're doing so with great contributions to the country. That gives me hope because we see the results of, of their work and of religious freedom being able to help them do their work without any kind of limitations um, or restrictions. So I, I really think, you know, we're, we're, there's a lot of walking wounded out there. Sure. Um, religious freedom allows them to both find consolation and accompaniment but also find that great salve, which is a relationship with, with our Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, I've seen it happen in my own life and the people that I care for and love. And it's one of those, when you've got something good, you want it to spread. So with all of the contagion that we've got going on, um, I do believe that religious belief is probably the most beautiful thing to want to spread um, to the people around us. Amen. Andrea, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Well, it was great. Thank you so much for inviting me. It is not hard to see that Western culture is in the midst of a crisis. St. John Paul II described this crisis as a culture of death, and Pope Francis has described it as a throwaway culture. Despite this crisis, there is hope because the gospel is the prophetic voice crying out in our cultural wilderness. For over 10 years, the MA in Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston has transformed lay students who want to be the change in our culture by immersing them in the intellectual patrimony of the Catholic Church. In this graduate program that is now online as well as on campus, students are equipped with the wisdom of the Catholic theological, moral, social, and spiritual traditions. Our students come from a variety of backgrounds, including different personal experiences, professional experiences, stages in life, and educational histories. What brings them together is their shared passion to grow intellectually and spiritually through immersion in the best texts that the Catholic tradition has to offer. For more information, Google the Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas.